Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly and Antoinette Latouf with you. In this episode, why we're better at talking about some mental health problems and not others. So we'll be bringing you an interview where a daughter opens up about her mother's struggle with schizophrenia. To some extent, the portrayals of ADHD and depression and anxiety that we are seeing, they're accepted because they are palatable. And I think that we really need to think about, you know, people who live with more complex conditions. So that's Elfie Scott. And she was a teenager when she found out her mum had schizophrenia. And then a lot of things started to make sense. But her story also opens up this really important question, like why we struggle to talk about complex mental health conditions like schizophrenia. Yeah, that's in our briefing. First, here are the big headlines of the day. It is Wednesday, March 15. The AUKUS submarine announcement finally happened yesterday with the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, standing alongside Joe Biden and Rishi Sunak in San Diego. So I thank you again, Prime Minister Albanese, Prime Minister Sunak, and the United States could not ask for two better friends or partners to stand with as we work to create a safer, more peaceful future for the people everywhere. That's Joe Biden there. And so, Tom, it really just confirmed what we already knew from leaked reports over the Mm. last week, that we're going to get at least three nuclear-powered subs from the US in the next decade, And then we'll build our own in Adelaide from around the 2040s. But the new part, Mm. um, it's the cost. Um, It will cost taxpayers, wait for it, up to $368 billion over three decades. I'm just going to leave that amount with you, Tom. (laughs) I just can't get over that. $368 billion. So in the leaked media reports we'd seen over the last few days, the first number I saw getting reported was $170 billion. Like, that's a lot. Mm. Um, a few days later, it was 200 Yep. Now we've got the announcement up to $368 billion. Now, I might sound like a naive pacifist, but I just cannot get over the cost. And I, I don't see how three submarines is going to make a huge difference if we're invaded by China, if that ever happens. And I wonder if all these big announcements about defence spending actually increase the risk of a war rather than decrease it. And I thought by all the efforts with the new government that the relationship with China was thawing. And to put it in context, you know, one, one economist has said the cost of one submarine could solve the housing crisis in New South Wales. And I know whenever there's discussion about defence, you could go, well, what about hospitals and mm. what about schools? Um, and those who are, ro- are really sort of pro-arms and protect ourselves say, well, there'll be no hospitals and schools if we're not safe. I just didn't understand that the threat of war was apparently so big or imminent that we need to spend this kind of money. We'll never know until we get to the future and find out. So I remain open-minded to, um, you know, be convinced that this is worth it. Um, I hope it's not. Yeah. Um, but we'll just have to wait and see how the next few decades unfold. And dozens of AFL players have launched a class action seeking compensation over long-term concussion. It's incredibly difficult to live with these adverse effects that just aren't who you really are at your core. Yeah, so that's one of the lawyers involved in the case, Michelle Mugglet from Mugglet Injury Lawyers. So former Cats player Max Rook is the lead plaintiff in the class action and it was lodged in Victoria Supreme Court. He ended his career a two-time premiership hero um, but claims he suffered permanent injuries due to concussion and negligence from the AFL and he's one of 60 players involved. Here's the response from the AFL CEO, Gil McLaughlin. 
When everyone goes out in the field, like I did, like you do, like everyone did when they played, there's a level of assumption of risk. But they do that knowing all the things we're doing that I think we take very seriously and we take our duty of care seriously. Pushing back the responsibility somewhat on the players themselves. Well, the AFL has also, though, committed um, to $25 million. They're paying for a long-term brain health study. And just a couple of years ago, they they doubled their mandatory timeouts for players who suffer concussions. Um, now they have to have at least 12 days of observation before they're allowed to return to the field. And I don't know if I'm a little bit like footy naive, but I wonder if helmets make things better because I know NFL players have helmets. So I had a, um, I had a little look there. And just last month, there was a US study of like mm. hundreds of former NFL players. And as it turns out, over 90% um, of the players studied showed signs of that brain injury, CTE. So I'm, I'm just not sure what the answer is here. Well, some rugby players wear headgear. I used to wear headgear um, when I played rugby as a junior. Didn't help me that much. I got knocked out We can can tell, Tom, we can tell. (laughs) Um, But yeah, this is a big class action. Um, A lot of people have been speculating this would happen. So this will be really interesting to see if the AFL has to make a massive payout because you mentioned the NFL. They they had to make a huge payout several Mm. years ago. So it could happen here too. The big wet is finally coming to an end. The Bureau has announced that the La Nina started back in September of last year is finally over. And we've switched to enso-neutral conditions out in the Pacific Ocean. That's Dr Andrew Watkins there. So this means the triple La Nina, yes, it's over. It's only the third time a triple La Nina has ever been recorded. And the weather phenomenon meant Australia set a number of rainfall records last year, which was the ninth wettest year on record. But the Bureau has issued a new warning with an El Nino watch that's been declared for hot and dry conditions that could come into effect um, as early as August. Mm, So that'll make a concerning um, fire hazard for next summer. You know, there's just been so much growth um, because of all this rain, so much vegetation, and then you follow that up with a really hot, dry year. um, We'll be back on the lookout for fires next year. And the latest US inflation data is out. So the annual inflation figure is down from 6.4 to 6%. But prices in the last month were stronger than expected, so inflation is proving slightly more stubborn. Um, And that would normally point to more rate hikes in the US, but there's been turmoil on bond markets over the last 24 hours because of the collapse of those three banks Mm. in America. So bank stocks got hammered in the US yesterday, especially smaller regional banks like First Republic in San Francisco, which was down 62% its its share price. Um, Then on the bond market, the money lending market, returns on short-term bonds or debt dropped more than they had since the record 1987 crash. Mm. So many economists are now interpreting that's a signal that the instability in the US banking sector means central bank interest rates will actually be coming down a lot sooner than expected. So bond markets often lead central banks in their decision-making on interest rates. So that's just one to watch for anyone who is worried about interest rates. And Meta has laid off another 10,000 workers, and uh, you may remember it cut 11,000 last November. So that's another indication that the tech sector is really under pressure. And Zuckerberg has dubbed it, uh, he's dubbed 2023 as the year of efficiency. I'm a 
You tell that to the 21,000 workers mm. who've lost their jobs. And at the start of the year, Amazon announced um, its plan to close more than 18,000 jobs because of the uncertain economy. And Google's parent company, Alphabet, made 12,000 cuts. And there's actually, Tom, this independent website, layoffs.fyi, which tracks job losses in the tech mm. sector. Um, and it says so far this year that it's um, counted 128,000 job cuts. And we're only in March. The biggest ever endometriosis study has discovered new information about the disease that's going to help better diagnose and treat it. We've been able to identify 42 regions in the DNA that increase your risk of getting endometriosis. Dr Sally Mortlock from the University of Queensland. So until now, 17 regions in the DNA were linked to endometriosis. That's now more than doubled. And endometriosis impacts around one in nine women. It mm. causes chronic pain, infertility and fatigue from lesions growing outside the uterus. And, and this new research means endometriosis diagnosis will hopefully be easier because up until now, it can take up to a decade to confirm and it's hoped it will help improve the quality of life for sufferers and open avenues for new treatment and also better navigate whether a patient needs hormonal or pain treatment. Mm, that is very helpful information. All right, in just a moment, we're talking about schizophrenia with Elfie Scott. Hello, Antoinette Latouf here. So when you think about schizophrenia, you may picture someone who is like yelling in public or has split personalities or, or maybe even a, a tendency to be violent. This complex mental health disorder impacts around one in a hundred Aussies. And even though we've become more open to talking about other mental health problems like depression and anxiety, schizophrenia still comes with a lot of stigma and secrecy. Someone who knows about this firsthand is Elfie Scott. Um, her mother has schizophrenia, which Elfie only found out about when she was 14 years old. Elfie's a journalist and she's written a book about her experience, telling her mum's story, which is the memoir part of the book, but it's also an investigation into this condition and how we deal with it and how we're failing people with these complex mental health problems. The book's called The One Thing We've Never Spoken About. Um, Elfie also has a Bachelor of Psychological Sciences from the University of New South Wales. Elfie, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Tell us about the moment you found out that your mum had schizophrenia. I was actually told for the first time that my mum had schizophrenia by my school counsellor. I was never told by a family member. And I think that I'd been seeing my school counsellor for like a few months by that point, but I was around 14 years old. And that was the first time that I ever properly heard the words schizophrenia come from an adult. And I was given any sort of definition of what was happening with my mum. Do you think you really understood what you were being told? No, not really at all. Like I knew the word obviously and I kind of had some vague understanding mm. that what it meant was something dark and something mm. untouchable and something scary, but I had no real understanding of what it was or any of the technical definitions around it. How did you feel being told that? Uh, I remember feeling confused but also slightly relieved that somebody had acknowledged that there was something a little bit odd going on in my family or a little bit abnormal going on in my family because up until that point it had just been this sort of like vague uh, nebulous thing that was around my family's universe but I never had any sort of 
real understanding of what was going on. So did it make sense then once you found out a little bit more, because you consulted a friend, you consulted Google, did it start to make sense, like some of your mum's behaviour? Yeah, it did. Like the puzzle pieces fell into place for sure. So there had been things that I'd witnessed in our family household. I'd seen, you know, my mum speaking to people that weren't there. I'd seen her acting in odd ways. But yeah, I think actually hearing the word and coming to understand schizophrenia really gave me a sort of grasp on my family's context, which is a very underrated thing for when you're a child, because I think when you're a kid, you have some sense about your family, but to actually like hear those words be given the dictionary of understanding a mental health condition like that is really important. So what were the experiences that you noticed as a kid? How did it affect you? How did it affect her? How did it affect your lives growing up? It was always there, like mum's symptoms sort of ebb and flow and they're pretty low severity uh, in general. So, you know, she would say things like people are trying to break into the house. There would be this kind of like sense of oppression that she experienced. She thought that there were people who were trying to come and get her and things like that. And there were people who were trying to break into the bottom of the garden. So there were all of these things that we used to see mum do, like she'd go down to the bottom of the garden at night and try to find the source of these voices and things like that. But yeah, it was just this part of our lives that wasn't like hugely intrusive. Mm. It was just sort of there. It's hard to explain when Mm. it's sort of normalised, I guess. Well, there was a lot of secrecy around your mother's schizophrenia, but you did end up reading her journals. Mm. What did you find out there? The journals were written by my mum a couple of years after she was first diagnosed, I think. I think she was told by a psychiatrist to like write down her full experience. So I really found out like when she first started to experience hearing voices, I learnt about how she really hated the house that we grew up in when she first got there, which I kind of understand. It's like too big and it's kind of freaky at night. It Mm. gets really dark. And I learned about how stressful it was for her as a young mum as well, uh, you know, experiencing the symptoms of a complex mental health condition, but also being a full-time parent, raising two young children and a baby. It was a huge amount for her to bear. So I think it's fair to say that we're getting better when it comes to talking about depression and anxiety, but the same isn't the case for schizophrenia. And, and you write that, you know, complex mental health conditions continue to terrify people, that their insults, their slurs, things like a schizo or a psycho or someone having bipolar is said in, you know, in not a favourable way. How much is this kind of language, this derogatory language part of the problem? The destigmatization process for common mental health conditions like depression and anxiety, they've been around for a while. But that's obviously an ongoing process as well. Uh, you know, we say that they're destigmatized to some extent, but that's definitely not all across Australia. So I should say that to start off with. But with complex mental health conditions, the conversation doesn't exist at all. The dialogue hasn't been opened up. Nobody feels comfortable saying that they have schizophrenia in a public space. I think it's fair to say. So I think there is a huge amount of work that needs to be done for us to be realistic and to understand the burdens that come with a complex mental health condition, but then to also accept the people who live with them as whole human beings. Like we're nowhere near that point yet. So why do you think it is so much harder to talk about or for people to admit that they have? 
I think it's a very multifaceted question, which is sort of why I wrote the book, because mm. I was trying to figure that out. And it turns out it takes a lot of words to be able to express that. I think there are various parts to this story. I think that media portrayals of complex mental health conditions mm. are still abysmal. So in Australia, still half of all mentions of schizophrenia in newspapers and across media are to do with crime reporting. So very rarely do we get to see success stories or people living average lives with complex mental health conditions. But then I also think that it comes down to the mental health care system because the failures of the mental health care system mean that a lot of people still fall through the cracks. And that means that our understanding of complex mental health conditions is so broadly defined by the people who are living with it most severely, who are most severely affected by it. Is it partly just the reality of it that it is way more debilitating? It is way more challenging to live in a a sort of a relatively normal life when you're suffering from schizophrenia? Yeah, I think that is a part of it. But I also think that we have to understand that complex mental health conditions have a really broad range of experience. So people can live relatively normal, functioning, working Mm. lives with complex mental health conditions for a start. But then I would also say that people who have severe conditions shouldn't be kept in the dark either. Something you emphasise in your writing is that your mother had a, you know, a relatively normal life, but she also had access to ongoing psychiatric treatment, a supportive family, and she had the resources to, to manage her mental health. What happens to people who aren't so lucky? The mental health system in Australia, I think we would like to believe that it really supports everybody. And that's a lot of our experiences when Mm. we experience common mental health conditions like depression. You know, you go to the doctor, you get those 10 uh, Medicare subsidised sessions for psychologists and you're sort of on your way. And that's fantastic. But for people who live with more complex conditions that need more ongoing care, it can be an absolute nightmare trying Mm. to navigate the system. So for people who have to have that sort of ongoing care, it is a real struggle. And it means that a lot of the burden of care often falls onto families and carers because there's nobody to wrap around these people and look after them in case they end up in emergency situations. And that's what often happens. They either end up in emergency or in the criminal justice system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For people who fall through the cracks, those are the networks that catch them, basically. And it's really appalling that we leave people to suffer and struggle until they end up in those really serious situations. If you had a magic wand and could have a say on one policy decision or one shift in the way that Australia deals with schizophrenia, what would it be? I would love to see people with lived experience of complex mental health conditions and lived experience of the mental health care system being able to lead policy on a much broader scale. Because right now I think it's quite scattered and I think that the overhaul of the mental health care system ultimately needs to be led by people who understand it and understand how much it can absolutely fail people. So in the last year, there's been some really high profile cases of people living with ADHD and that feels like it's broken down some of the stigma around ADHD in particular, a bit like we have with depression and anxiety over the last, say, 10 to 15 years. Do you think schizophrenia will go the same way? 
I really hope so. I I think that in order for that to happen, we really need to talk about how we think about mental health in general, because I think that to some extent, the portrayals of ADHD and depression and anxiety that we are seeing, they're accepted because they are palatable. And I think that we really need to think about, you know, people who live with more complex conditions and how that might not be the same. And Mm. Like, despite that, it is still a really integral part of the mental health care conversation. So I would love to see the conversation expand, but I also think that it will require us really reassessing what we value about people mm. who live with mental health conditions and yeah, because, because breaking I, down those stereotypes. Because I talk about living with anxiety and depression, but also I have a job, I add to society, mm. you know, in those kind of transactional ways. Um, but for someone living with schizophrenia, they may not be able to have a job or, you know, give back, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think ultimately it comes down to how we assess vulnerability in general. And, you know, if people are living with these more serious conditions, why aren't we talking about them? Because ultimately they're the people who need that the most. They need Australian society to open up and understand them so that they can get access to the mental health care that they need. That was Elfie Scott. Her book is called The One Thing We've Never Spoken About. The one takeaway from that for me is that, yeah, maybe we are getting better when it comes to talking about anxiety and depression or even ADHD because we're seeing more examples of people who live with it but who are then kind of, their stories are kind of framed in the, this was my story, but this is my trajectory and I still have, I'm still a leader and I still have a great job. and I'm still okay. Uh, yes, I'm still okay. And I, I think perhaps it's less palatable with schizophrenia because we still, we do really equate um, someone's meaning or, or their worth with what they can contribute to society rather than how society can support them. Yeah, well, I guess... In the journey of breaking down stigma, that's been the way people have talked about it, that don't brand me with all these stereotypes because I can still be all these things Mm. that are not stereotypically part of living with this condition. But schizophrenia has a lot more severe impacts on people, so that relationship's never going to be the same. But, you know, it's not about loving them for their productivity or supporting them because they can still be productive. It's just about supporting them and not writing them off because they have that condition. And tomorrow on The Briefing, we're looking into the Silicon Valley bank collapse in America and what this means for the stability of the banking sector and the overall economy because it has sent jitters through a lot of markets. Listener.